Hi, you're listening to Extra Spicy, the food podcast by the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Soleil Ho, the restaurant critic. And I'm Justin Phillips, the uh, food writer. We talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond who are writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On this episode, we speak with San Francisco community organizer Vinny Eng about how the coronavirus has upended the restaurant industry and what an organization called the SF New Deal is doing about it. So we are committed to continuing to be a voice in the community, to advocate for meaningful changes to how we feed the people who are most insecure and closest to need. We also give you advice on your burning questions about food. These little critters don't like having spicy hands, right? (laughs) So (laughs) I put sriracha on the dirt. I brought chili pepper, I brought chili powder too. (laughs) It's all good. Let's do this thing. So just to set the scene, this is Soleil. I am recording inside of my car outside of my apartment. <laughs> We're stuck at home. We're not in the studio as we normally would like to be. Justin, where are you? I'm in my living room. Uh, not living room, sorry. In my, God, don't, don't, don't even know place yet during this pandemic, but I'm in my dining room. Um, yeah, and I got like the microphone placed in like this insulated box to block out the sound of a whole bunch of buses driving by outside. And uh, I'm telling you, man, it's a far cry from like the the cushy spot that we had back at the office makes me miss it. <laughs> I know. I mean, you still have access to snacks like at the office, but yeah, at least they're free. Yeah, that is true. I mean, sort of. I mean, you still have to buy them. Yeah. And then you can't go to the office and record a podcast like in sweatpants or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But, you know, I'm really excited to be recording this one somehow against the odds um, in nature. <laughs> Gets the odds and nature. As the world succumbs to disease. Um, Yeah. But, you know, on this show, I'm really happy to be talking to Vinny Ang, who decided to turn his career, you know, a very promising career as a sommelier um, in the food business in San Francisco's restaurant scene into political work. And, you know, as this outbreak has continued to just really mess with restaurants and really hurt the business. Um, he's pitched in with SF New Deal, which he will explain in the interview, but it is a really, I don't know, it's just exciting. It's hopeful in a time when there's so little that is hopeful. I think we all started to, to receive the signals about COVID-19 hitting, hitting the Bay Area. Um, and uh, in that last week of February, Mayor London Breed announced a state of emergency and numerous food businesses started to see a dramatic decrease in, um, in reservations and, and a dramatic increase in cancellations. And it, it really reverberated quite quickly because the hospitality industry is really intimately connected. And so people started just um, sharing information about what they were seeing on the ground level and and no doubt, within the first two weeks of March, it became really clear that um, a shelter-in-place order was coming. All right, I, I want to I want to cut in real quick on that when he was talking about how uh, you know just the idea that that these restaurant owners um, and chefs can could see uh, the impact of 
you know, coronavirus and what was about to happen in these, you know, lower reservations and cancellations. And I remember um, I wrote the story about catering companies. And there's this one in San Francisco called Culinary Eye. And between February and uh, the end of March, they had lost, you know, like $680,000 in canceled, you know, orders. And they weren't, because the tech companies were, uh, you know, leaving their offices in mid-May due to the shelter in place order, they couldn't cater those events. And I remember just thinking like, you know, trying to quantify the amount of money that was being lost quickly in the industry is just almost impossible, you know? Right, no, you, you, it's easy to think about the restaurants, right? Because that's the most visceral kind of like, no one's going to restaurants, duh, so they're losing money. But there are all these other industries that are so connected to them, like the food tour guides, for instance, like what are they doing? Right. Um, even food media, like our, our food section has very few advertisements I noticed this week. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's one from a winery and I'm very grateful for them, but they're the ones holding it down, whereas everyone else had to shrink their budgets for ads, right? Yeah. A lot of these kind of mm, collateral jobs and industries have faced a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of trouble just because no one's eating out. <laughs> like, no. it's, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah, no one's eating out. Everyone's home. Um, you know, it's like a after the shelter in place order, it was like a ghost town in the city. And you know, even even those. So we think about the restaurants that had to, that, you know, start losing reservations. You think about catering companies that lost out on these tech industry gigs. And then you also have to think of the businesses that were taking donations, like food runners, that would go to these tech companies after they would have events you know, with all their like salads or burritos or whatever it was that was catered and take that leftover food and bring that to, you know, homeless shelters or other groups that um, that might be in need during this time. They started losing out on a ton of food. And it shows you just how lengthy the thread is when it comes to our uh, like our food ecosystem out here. It's crazy. Yeah. An ecosystem is right, I think, because when you think about the fishing folks, right? Trying yep. to say fishermen because that's patriarchal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the farmers, the dairy folks, the people who, you know, transport those things, the people who clean the linens, all of those people, right, um, yeah. are suffering because in general the food world is suffering. And I think that's really important to remember. But, I mean, I think we should recap a little bit of just what happened at the beginning to cause all of this. Um, you know, I think when shelter in place first started in the Bay Area, I certainly didn't know what the hell I was supposed to be doing as a restaurant critic. There were no restaurants right. to go to anymore because you couldn't dine in. There was no anything. It was just chaos. Yeah. I remember uh, two days probably before the official announcement. And I remember, I mean, it was one of the, it was before the shelter in place order. And I remember it was, uh, you know, you knew something was about to happen like something significant that was going to alter our day to day. And uh, I remember ha just having this really weird feeling just in the restaurant, knowing, you know, when, when we met people outside of it, uh, we had this long discussion about like, you know, should we hug? Should we shake hands? Like it's, you know, what do we do? And then even in the restaurant, there was no, um, you know, no one really knew how to follow social distancing practices. Like there weren't many people there, but even the waiter, who uh, came to our table, you know, was nervous about like pointing too close to the menu. It was just this, you know, it was just this really weird kind of 
calm before the sto storm kind of experience. Um, Sully, do you remember the the last place that you went to before this uh, the shelter in place order? Like, was it right before it? Was it a little bit before it? Do you remember what that experience was like? <laughs> right before the shelter in place order, I went to go to fondue actually with our coworker Annie. Oh wow! <laughs> like the opposite of probably what you were supposed to do. Like, <laughs> right, right. Dip bread into the same pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I thought, like, I had that That's feeling, awesome. though, of this is not going to happen for a very long time, you know? Yeah. So I wanted to yeah. get something extremely, you know, something that I will probably miss and something that may, at least that would be in danger of never coming back. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, the, the world that we're, that we're living in now is just... You know, restaurants have been closed, many of them anyway, and we don't know if they're going to survive. And so many people are out of work. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and so I'm sure I'm sure you remember this, like you saw it, the the layoffs happening quickly. Like as soon as the shelter in place order hit, um, you would have, you know, small places like Brenda's French Soul Food in, in Oakland that had to lay off like 200 people across its, you know, two, three restaurants. And then you had, you know, uh, big restaurant groups in San Francisco, like, uh, Adriano Paganini's back of the house restaurant group that had to lay off like, you know, 1100. And then you had Danny Myers Union Square Hospitality Group, and they laid off like 2000. And you could see it just on all levels, you know, whether you had five employees, and you had to let three go because the place is run by, you know, two people that are in a partnership or, you know, a huge restaurant group, but it just started happening everywhere and quick, 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 quick. Yeah. And just as quickly, though, a lot of coalitions, a lot of aid organizations formed in the first weeks after shelter in place. And I think that's why I wanted to talk to Vinny Yang about SF New Deal is just because, you know, you hear so much horror, right? And so much tragedy. And I wanted to know more about what people were doing to at least help um, fix the problems or at least put a Band-Aid on them and just see what options are out there. So for someone who's never heard of the New Deal, has no idea, um, can you describe what the organization does? Yeah, sure. So um, the SF New Deal is a nonprofit organization. We exist to solve for multiple issues that have become very obvious in, in light of COVID-19. Uh, primarily that small businesses need immediate financial relief in the form of cash because a lot of federal relief programs are still being negotiated, still being operationalized, um, and, and exhibit a lot of shortcomings in, in reaching most of the small businesses here in San Francisco. Um, the other thing that SF New Deal solves for is that in, in COVID-19 and the response to COVID-19, there is massive structural unemployment and also massive, uh, massively growing food insecurity in, in our community. So SF New Deal pays restaurants, local small food businesses, to make meals that we deliver to people in need throughout the city and county of San Francisco. People have had, you know, problems with food insecurity before COVID-19. Um, can you talk more about how those problems have become exacerbated? Um, the, the, the thing about food insecurity is that it has existed for a long time and will continue to exist unless we change the ways that we address this issue. Um, 
COVID-19 revealed how fragile our ecosystem is in supporting people who are food insecure. And on top of that, it's it's really growing um, a sense of, of insecurity and anxiety around how people are meeting their essential needs in a time when more and more people are unemployed and more and more people are uncertain about the how they'll fulfill their obligations to their family members and how, how they'll meet the needs of, uh, of their households. And I guess in the day-to-day then, um, how do people get food like from the organization? How does that work? Well, so the way the SF New Deal works is we, we were able to launch and have an a, a, a immediate impact because we worked with existing community-based organizations. And we say to them, how, how do you incorporate food into your outreach? How do you incorporate food into your, your daily support services? Um, if we can find a way to provide you with prepared meals, when do you need them so that you can use them to support your existing services so that your staff members can become more available to addressing other needs of the populations that you serve? And so we also try to um, acknowledge in a, in a meaningful way that uh, food needs are not the same. Right. Like uh, not everyone com- wants a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? Correct. And not everyone wants to eat uh, what um, Zuni might be offering. Like right. stylistically, um, there is something that I call sort of the dignity of choice. Um, and you, we work with our community partners to say like, what, what are the considerations we need to tell our restaurant partners about what your community members are asking for? I think Vinny makes a really important point here, too, about, like, the diversity of people's needs, right? And, like, cultural, um, I guess culturally appropriate food is yeah. even harder to come by when grocery stores are so screwed. And I'm, I'm not talking about, like... Trader Joe's tikka masala or whatever. Yeah, right, <laughs> but, right. You know, if you can't go to your local grocery store, like, for instance, I go to 99 Ranch Market all the time right. for dumplings and noodles and that sort of thing. And I, I'm not so inclined to do that anymore. But if I'm trying to just order groceries online, that's really hard. I can't find gochujang on the internet. I can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It impacts what you're, yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely get it. I completely get it. Is there anything in particular that you're really, really missing? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, like, I need, or like, this, there's certain spices that you need to brew in um, broth to make pho. So, like, black oh, yeah. cardamom and, like, cinnamon sticks and that sort of thing, right? And gotcha. coriander seed. And I can't find that stuff, you know, especially black cardamom at like Safeway, which, you know, is certainly easy because you can get in line, whatever, but it sucks. Yeah. (laughs) So there are certain things, right, um, where because there's shortages, because people are hoarding and because such and such things are happening, right, like actually having access to the things that would truly be comforting for me in this time is a tougher proposition. Yeah. 
I, I just have one question. I, I'm curious as to, so there is a, so obviously, you know, I, I grew up in a, I'm, I grew up in Louisiana, so there's a lot of, um, you know, Creole food that I want to make. And uh, all of a sudden, like there's a brand out here. Like if you want a, if you're going to make a red beans and rice, you know, quick dinner one night, um, which I don't recommend, but, you know, if you're going to do it quickly, uh, they have this brand called Zatarans that, uh, and so like, I'm, I, know you, I know you know about that that um, you can buy like boxes of, you know, like red beans and rice seasoning kits or like a white bean seasoning kit or a gumbo seasoning kit. And I remember no one bought those things a couple of months ago. No one was buying them. It would be easy for me to go to any section of any grocery store if they had that um, and find a bunch of them. Now, all of a sudden, they're all gone. And I can't help but wonder, like, are there tens of thousands of people trying to make red beans and rice and stuff at home for the first time. Oh my you God. You know what I mean? Yeah, where's like, that I, think piece? That Look, <laughs> I was so, uh, I was so bummed out about this. I even called uh, one of the, a chef that runs a, uh, a like Southern and, uh, and kind of French Creole restaurant out here just to complain about it. I was like, am I, am I tripping or just everybody? But she's like, I think everyone's just buying it. And I don't think many of them know what to do. So I don't know. Maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's a think piece or maybe it's just worth, you know, mentioning it and giving people a recipe or something. But I'm telling you, where, where the hell is all this Zatarans? I just, I can't get over that. I mean, so yeah, like not being able to find your food is it. Yes, it is a bummer. But it also, you know, in a time of crisis, you want to eat what's comfortable, what what is soothing. And it sucks to not be able to get that. Yeah, have to be creative. Got to be creative. And with that, I think now's a really good time to take a break. So check on your pots of beans and poke your rising loaves of bread and uh, stay tuned. And we're back. Keep listening to my interview with Vinny Ang of the San Francisco New Deal. So, yeah, if you're extending to the end of, you know, as the assumed end of shelter in place, um, I guess, what do you think the future of the organization will be once it's all over? Do you think there is going to be an over? I don't think the the notion of over, as I, as I think you and I might consider, uh, we are not going to return to quote unquote full economy spending anytime soon, especially not before a vaccine is widely available. Uh, we at SF New Deal, all of us, the, the collective leadership, uh, acknowledge this is a really, really important and pivotal time to make decisions, to triage this immediate moment of crisis, to begin a new conversation about how we address food security on a long term basis. So we are committed to continuing to be a voice in the community, to advocate for meaningful changes to how we feed the people who are most insecure and closest to need so that we don't find ourselves cycling in and out of um, this triage that we're in. The idea of triage, uh, Soleil, got me me thinking about, um, you know, just the experience of getting takeout and delivery and interacting with restaurants and delivery people and just the experience of dining, you know, during a pandemic at, at with you, at what point, 
Um, Because I know you had some apprehension about a lot of stuff, as you should, you know, being a restaurant critic. How did you navigate that in the beginning and uh, kind of where are you now with everything? Yeah, so it was, you know, (laughs) it's funny that you say that, like, of course, I have apprehension because I'm a restaurant critic. I think generally I, I, I have a lot of anxiety about everything all the time, yeah. but <laughs> especially now. So, yeah, at the beginning, I was just like, OK, everyone's offering takeout all of a sudden. And do we cover that be- as a good thing or is it a bad thing? And, you know, it's right. not always that binary. But at the same time, I realized pretty quickly that these places were doing this because there was no other way to you know, they had obligations for rent, utilities, taxes, and also payroll um, right. and benefits for people who wouldn't qualify for unemployment insurance, undocumented workers. And that's why a lot of them were struggling to stay open, like, you know, with skeleton crews, despite having to lay off like so many other folks, um, because they wanted to at least provide that baseline. And that wasn't a heroic or good thing necessarily. I mean, it was, but it was an indicator of like these massive inequities in our system and the way that we dole out benefits and who we think deserve benefits, right, for the work they do. So, yeah, yeah, I was obviously, right, I was like really torn up about it because, and that's why I I wrote like an editorial actually, like an opinion piece about it, just outlining what was wrong, why places were making these choices that they were making um, and what needed to be fixed. So. Yeah, I mean, like, there are a lot of imperfect solutions. Um, I think a lot of restaurant folks are stuck putting Band-Aids on a much deeper wound that we still haven't even begun to deal with. I know. Yeah. It, uh, you know, and within that, too, I had one of the conversations that sticks out to me, uh, just talking about the functionality of restaurants right now and, and in the beginning with uh, with delivery, I spoke to a, a driver who um, actually wasn't, in the Bay Area, she worked in New York City, and uh, she worked, for, you know, for like for Grubhub, and she was just talking about the experience that she had there, and how in the very beginning um, of any kind of shelter-in-place order, people in the city weren't really taking it serious. She was saying how, you know, if she had to go make a drop-off, like people were still coming up to her, or, you know, getting really close and being friendly and if she was trying to be distant they thought you know there was something wrong with that and you know they would be upset about it and then over time she was talking about how it changed and then people started to really take it serious and go out of their way not to interact with her and then they were really thankful for the precautions that she would take because she built this like bucket in her car to be able to wash her hands while on the go and um you know i I was just like man it, it made me really happy to because I was always worried in the beginning about doing some kind of delivery order because, you know, at some point it's like our friends and homies that do these jobs, you know, and if we're like at home, you have to wrestle with, you know, should I call and have someone that, you know, I potentially know go out and do this, what I want them to, what I tell my sister or my brother to do this, if it was their job, like, you know, it, it's those weird emotions that you have to wrestle with. But anyway, so I started feeling better when she told me that they, uh, that people started taking it serious. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a lot to think about in this whole process and the role that we play in it as as consumers, you know? Right, yeah. And I think that's the actually really interesting thing about SF New Deal is that you don't have to worry about all this other crap, right? About 
customers necessarily or delivery drivers and this, these third-party things, right? Um, they set it up so that you get paid to make food for people who will take it regardless. You don't have to worry about demand. Um, there's a little bit more structure at a time when there really is no structure. And right. I think that is actually, actually a really smart idea. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. You know, just just like solely for background, I remember uh, it, with Food Runners, they were talking about how uh, like one of the chefs that was doing that stuff when they exp- when they were doing their little expansion, he was like, it's not so much, you know, just giving people food, like whatever's left over, taking ingredients and making like a salad or a wrap for it or a soup. He's like, there are dietary restrictions. And things that you literally have to take into account. And he was just saying how, you know, a lot of people think that giving anything is better than nothing. But even uh, for like at-risk populations who have like really strict health constraints, but there are a ton of in major cities. He's like, you have to be really uh, aware of that. Yeah. So it's not, you know, there's an idea that it's not as easy as just taking whatever, cooking it and giving it to hungry people. Truly the opportunity in this moment is that more and more people are experiencing COVID-19 and and severe expressions of being positively infected with it. You know, they, they say that suffering brings us closer. And in this moment of COVID-19, more and more people that we know are likely to be suffering right now. And, and hopefully we can learn from that and make a new commitment that like our function and our role as human beings is to relieve and diminish and decrease the suffering that our neighbors are experiencing in this moment. I think this idea that um, that Vinny brings up, actually, that suffering throughout this experience, right? The whole world is going through this at the same time, which I think is a really rare occurrence in human history, where we are all, every single, probably most humans on Earth, are thinking about the same things at the same time and dealing with the same things at the same time, more or less, is unprecedented, right? Um And the point that this might be bringing us closer, I think, is a really interesting one, because I think in other ways, it's driven us all completely nuts. Right. (laughs) Like there are ways in which, you know, like I could speak against that and see the ways in which it's really exacerbated a lot of um, tensions between people. And, you know, it should bring us closer. Right. Like any kind of parable of suffering. But yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where you see like uh, everyone's suffering, sure. But then the, why, like, the people that are suffering are seeing how differently this suffering is playing out with different groups, you know? And it right. highlights. Like the fact that SF New Deal exists, right. right, speaks to the fact that different people are suffering differently. There you um, go. And that we yeah. are, we as a society are doing an awful job of alleviating that. Yeah. One thing that I do want to see more of is, uh, you know, all restaurants right now are in the in restaurants that never thought that they would be uh, that maybe had really affluent client client bases and, uh, you know, never really wanted for much of anything when it came to finances are now like, you know, in dire straits, just like everybody else. Uh, It would be great to see incentives tied to funding. that you know that correspond to like increasing diversity within the the workforce you know um like 
whatever funding might be available, you can go through it, but you also have to have this, you know, experience this program that does X, Y, and Z, you know, that promotes, you know, uh, what might have been your kitchen staff, you know, brown kitchen staff or women in the in the workspace to higher roles, like something tied to that. And I think, you know, during this pandemic, what's being what's being done is the whole industry is being kind of stripped of its parts and it's going to have to be rebuilt. But laying that foundation of uh, increasing the equity would be a smart move. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I think that I doubt that SF New Deal is going away um, once this pandemic goes away. Will this pandemic yeah. go away? We don't know. Oh, oh God. But I think that there are lessons that I certainly took away from this chat with Vinny that I think, well, I hope that, uh, that our listeners can take away too. For sure. Now it's time for one of our favorite segments of the show. Our Dear Spicy segment is our beloved advice column where we answer questions about food, life, love, and everything else you're obsessed with. Please send written questions or voice memos our way at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. For now, we can start by answering questions from my Instagram followers, of which there are legion. <laughs> the question goes, Dear Spicy, what's your chef's mark? The one staple ingredient you add to everything. That's a good one. What That's do you think? A... Um, uh, for me, I mean, this is going to be very stereotypical of like a southern Louisiana kid, but... Cayenne pepper. I uh, will use that in everything. I will use it in things that don't call for it. I will add it to recipes. I will run out of it on a regular basis and then go through withdrawals if I can't find it. I feel like that is a must-have in my cabinet right now. Ah, so where do you, I mean, like, is it like the McCormick and Schmicks, like, cayenne pepper? Is it like a special brand? See, I'm going to say something that, that might be, uh, that people might not like, but I, when it comes to cayenne pepper, I don't think you have to be faithful to a brand or a label. The, what you're trying to get accomplished with that seasoning is fine. Whoever makes it, it doesn't matter. If you can find that glowing reddish container and uh, sprinkle it into something, you'll be a-okay. I feel like the best brands, the worst brands, whatever, at the end of the day, it's still cayenne pepper. And grab that stuff, man. Use it. <laughs> okay, wait. So uh, what is the most out of the ordinary thing you've thrown it into? Oh, man. So I've used it, um, I've used it on a sandwich before. Like when I was little, it used to be, oh man, this is wild. When I was little, if you would like get at home from uh, like after school, when you would get home and you'd be like rummaging through the fridge or whatever, and you're looking for like a, I don't know, like a ham sandwich or something, just mayonnaise, blah, 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 mustard. But if you sprinkle a bit of uh, cayenne pepper on there too, it turns it into something else. That might sound outrageous to some people, but it was such a normal thing, man. So, so normal. Huh. Okay. Wait, Which, so... Not on top of the sandwich, but like on the interior, right? Like on the interior, yeah. It's like that okay. little hidden secret. But at the same time, you know, I also grew up in a place where people would have belts on and holsters for their hot sauce. So if they went out to eat, they could like unlatch a little flap and pull out a bottle of hot sauce. So it's the same holster you put like a shot, like a pistol in or like, you know, 
gun, no, no, no. It's, a it's, gun thing. It's specifically built for uh, for the hot sauce container. Now, granted, you know, this is down south, so probably next to that hot sauce container was some, you know, huge gun or something on their waist. But at the same time, like, it was a hot sauce container. So the idea of, like, putting spice into extra things, I just, you know, I'm not going to have a belt with a hot sauce container on it, but... I'm for sure going to have cayenne pepper in my cabinet. That's amazing. So that's me. What about you? So for me, this is really boring, but scallions. But not like any scallions. I have worked very hard. I've trained hours. (laughs) Devoted a lot of my life to learning how to cut them perfectly on a bias. And in Chinese cooking, they call it like the horse's ear cut, where, you know, they're these long, almost like diamond-shaped pieces that are really like super super thin and delicate and when you sprinkle them on top of anything it's almost like a signal of like asian food (laughs) (laughs) you know if you ever had like the chinese chicken salad yeah you know what i mean like that's how they come oh that's interesting so is it uh so for you is it more about the like the aesthetic or is it a taste dynamic too like what what's is it just the feeling you get when you see them or the act of cutting it like why what, what makes it so important well, I feel like it's like a, a thing in my family where we love onions, but we don't love, love them. Like mm. we, we we like them when they're super thin so you don't get a big bite of onion. So like the scallion cut super thin is like a perfect example of that aesthetic. I love it. Also, it looks cute. It's cute. Yeah. I Yeah. The horse. You know, you know, I, I do love the fact it's not so much in love with onions. It's in like with the onions, I guess, is the best way. Exactly. I feel that. I feel that. So here's another question that we got. Um, Dear Spicy, I'm thinking of growing my own edible garden. What items should I grow? So uh, I'm going to step out of the way of this one. I I don't have an edible garden going or anything like that. I do not have a green thumb. But Soleil, uh, what do you have going on? So I'm doing herbs, which are a pretty low maintenance sort of thing. I'm growing like... Like rosemary, parsley, thyme, mint in its own separate pot because mint is a crawler that like they colonize any any yep, dirt yep. they go into. So I keep them separate. Yeah. And garlic chives. I've also been sprouting um, my green onions just so I can have eternal green onions, which is really fun. The thing is, the really important thing about growing food out in the wild outside is that you're going to have pests. And I think a lot of city people don't really know how to deal with pests. Right. And like, so I, I've had this recurring problem with raccoons in my backyard. (laughs) And like, they're always like, they dug up my chives, for instance, like putting their grubby little human (laughs) hands into my pots, trying to get at the delicious morsels within. Right. And so it's like, okay, I don't want to kill the raccoons because that's gross. Um, and you know, I, but I don't, I don't want them to destroy my beautiful pots because that's annoying. And like, you know, we've been under shelter in place for so long that finding a, an enemy is like, ex- like it's extremely <laughs> exciting to me. Right. Right. Yeah. You have a new foe during all this downtime. Right. So what I've done and what people should do if you're having problems with things digging in your dirt is put sriracha all over the dirt. Oh. These little critters don't like having spicy hands, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I put Why? sriracha on the dirt. I put like uh, hot chili oil all over the dirt and some, oh. some of the leaves. I'm oh, seasoning man. my soil. 
<laughs> they don't like digging their hands, walking away with spicy hands. God, that's so funny to me. It's really funny. So, yeah, I mean, it, it completely fixes the problem because I saw like one exploratory hole in my planters this morning after I put chili oil all over everything. And that was it. <laughs> but like, you know, that raccoon learned its lesson. What's going to happen is that it's going to be some southern out-of-town raccoon who's going to dig their hands into that sriracha and be like, I'm chilling. I brought chili pepper. I brought chili powder, too. It's all good. (laughs) I know. Now I'm like, ooh, I should buy some cayenne, sprinkle it on everything. It's going to be great. Solid. Oh, man, that's great. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thank you to Vinny Eng for being in conversation with me. And thank you to Taya Francesca Price for editing this episode. You can read the transcript of my full interview with Vinny Ang at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions you may have about food, life, or anything else that you're obsessed with for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could find me, Solejo, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.